I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Tortoise. Hello, it's James. What's happening on the ground in Israel and in Gaza, the feelings around it, the shock, the sadness, grief, above all the fear... The diplomatic efforts that seem to be underway to try and prevent a wider conflict in the Middle East, all of those things rightly continue to dominate. And yes, this is also one of the moments when the gravitational pull of what else is happening in the world begins to exert itself on the news. In other words, it's a time when news judgments are harder than usual. It's the week beginning Monday, October the 16th. From Tortoise here in our newsroom in London, welcome to the news meeting. The Israeli military has said that more than a million Palestinians must leave the northern Gaza Strip within the next 24 hours ahead of an expected ground operation there. The United Nations considers it impossible for such a move to take place without devastating humanitarian consequences. 300,000 troops have been mobilized. It is just a matter of time before they go into Gaza now. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Saudi Arabia holding a third day of talks across the Middle East aimed at preventing the war from expanding. Now, Poland's right-wing populist Law and Justice Party looks set to lose its majority in Parliament following national elections over the weekend. We're joined today by Tortoise's World Affairs Editor, Charles Wattel. Charles, how are you? Hello, very well, thanks. And also by Basha Cummings, who is the editor of the Slow Newscast and deep at work on a story of your own, Basha. Hello. <laughs> Good to see you. Uh, I should just say that last week, Nogo, we had Basha and Yasha Munkin who joined us. In the pre-chat, they disappeared into a conversation in Polish. So if that gives you a sense of where I suspect Basha is going to pull the <laughs> news meeting on the back of the Polish elections, uh, there's a clue there. I have to say it's impossible to fill Yasha Munk's shoes. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 you're going to... Well, well, that's the perfect introduction. Uh, Nogotano Polski, um, you are going to do exactly that thing. Uh, you are, of course, in Jerusalem trying to make sense of what's happening in the Israeli politics that's around you, but also, I know, incredibly well sourced in terms of uh, people, friends, contacts in Gaza and trying to help us understand what's happening there right now, and what's likely to unfold in the course of the week. So we really appreciate you making the time when I imagine you're being pulled this way and that. Uh, it's really good of you to join us. Thank you. Basha, do you want to just give a flavour of what you think you want to talk about today? Yeah. Um, so yesterday there was an election in Poland. And I think I was here on the news meeting a week ago or two weeks ago saying, yeah, I think the ruling far-right populist party are going to win. It looks like they might not have won. And it looks like Donald Tusk and his coalition may be in a position to form a government, which is incredible. And so I would like to talk about that. OK, well, let's come back to that in a bit and what that means and why we should care. Charles, what do you want to talk about? 
Elon Musk misinformation, much of it related to Israel Gaza, and a theory I have. <laughs> OK, that's what that is in good time. But Norga, let's start with you. It's been a weird few days in terms of coverage of what's been happening in Israel and Gaza because last week obviously was dominated by the sense of shock, the unfolding understanding of what actually had happened on October the 7th. How do you make sense right now of what's most important? A lot of important things are happening. What matters most now? That's such a hard question to answer, James, because I'm surrounded by chaos. I'm surrounded by propaganda. I'm surrounded by um, suffering of a kind that I don't have the words to describe. I'm surrounded by the terror of some kind of strategic error which will launch either a regional war or something worse here. So I don't know how to gauge um, what's the most important thing. The heartbreak of a gentleman I just heard who has five family members dead or missing in Gaza and no clue where they might be. Or um, the fact that um, Antony Blinken is here now for the second time in a week trying to get free passage for U.S. citizens out of Gaza and trying maybe, maybe, maybe to prevent a regional war. It's one of those things in journalism that sometimes we alight upon or focus upon things that we understand that may not be important at the expense of things that are important that we don't understand. And it's interesting that over the weekend, there's been this focus on what should or shouldn't happen at the rougher crossing, Egypt's role in this, obviously people trailing after, as you say, Tony Blinken, Secretary of State, doing the rounds, the capitals of the Middle East. And also, I think there's this sense that the world is waiting. You know, the Israeli Defense Force has said it's preparing for this assault on Gaza, air, land and sea. I can't help wondering whether the biggest story is the story that's actually right in front of us, this story of people on the move, Israel calling for a million people to move from the north to the south of Gaza. We um, were lucky to have, enough to have Shina Lowe come and join us at the end of last week, who works at the Norwegian Refugee Council. She's in Jerusalem, but she has a bunch of colleagues, I think 50 plus, working in Gaza. And one of them, Yusuf Hamash, sent a voice note from the south end of, the, of Gaza. It's a chaotic situation. I will try to explain as much as I can. I'm rolling around in the streets. It's a horrible situation here. Wherever you go, you will find people in front of bakeries. Hundreds of people are waiting in lines, trying to, or even shops, trying to find anything to provide for their families and children. There is no way to withdraw cash. Even if you have in your bank account, you cannot withdraw. The ATMs are not working. There is no fuel. People doesn't have space in their head to think like ordinary people. People are trying to think how to survive. Also, it doesn't mean that there is no bombing in Khan Yunis. There is a lot of bombardment, but you cannot compare it to what's happening in the north and Gaza City. The world needs to interfere to stop this chaos. Let's just start, if we can, where you are in Jerusalem and the Israeli government. What have we learned over the course of the weekend about Netanyahu and the way in which the Israeli government now is set to respond? Well, those are actually two separate questions. The way the Israeli government is likely to respond is the more is the easier um, question. It's more practical. And the answer is, I don't know. The Israeli army has amassed 
about 360,000 reservists on the southern border and explicitly has said, including in a briefing just a few hours ago this morning, the Israeli army spokesman said they're preparing for an operation that will involve land, air, and sea. So in that respect, everything seems clear, although nothing has yet happened. The only thing we've seen so far are Israeli Air Force bombings in Gaza that um, have harmed a lot of people, but are aimed at eliminating the leadership of the Hamas terror movement. Beyond that, we're just waiting. The whole world and us here in Jerusalem, we're waiting. Does anyone have an idea of what the elimination of Hamas means? The elimination of Hamas leadership means killing them off, killing off the leaders of this terror organization. The elimination of Hamas political and military infrastructure in Gaza means um, dismantling the entire infrastructure they have put into place. One of the phrases I've heard a lot during this week that I have found so deeply offensive and just also so dumb is everyone who says Hamas is, you know, are the legal representatives of Palestinian people, they were legally elected and so forth. It's simply not true. It's not true and it's so unfair and it's so facile to taint the entire Palestinian people and their ages-long um, hopes for you know, national sovereignty to this disgusting terror group. But what do you make, what do you make Noga, of these polls you sometimes come across that say actually not elected, not with a mandate from the Palestinian people, but polling high amongst Palestinians? You know, most of these polls are pretty cheap polls. I don't pay a lot of attention to them. I know quite a lot of Palestinians. I don't know anyone who wants to be represented by the sort of atrocities committed by these people. And I think, I mean, I think it's a disturbing tack to take. That's one thing. Hamas took over in this basically a coup d'etat against the Palestinian Authority. And since then, the entire Western world, and certainly the entire Arab world, should be held responsible, and Israel very much, for having allowed Hamas to establish itself as a ruling force in this strip of land, over two million people, who are the first and last victims of Hamas. But, but Noga, I, I understand that point of view. What I don't understand is what Israel's strategy is. I don't understand, and I'm not saying that in a kind of grandiose way. I literally don't understand it. I mean, when Palestinians move from north to south, is Israel somehow thinking that Hamas, the Hamas leadership will stay to fight for that stretch of land? Presumably not. So what's Israel actually trying to do? James, the reason that you don't understand what Israeli strategy is, is that there is no Israeli strategy. That has to be said. Um... There was a leak last night to an excellent reporter for the Israeli national broadcaster called Suleiman Maswadeh, who got a leak that Netanyahu, when pressed by his own parliamentarians at a classified meeting of the Knesset's um, Foreign Affairs and Security Committee a few days ago, when he was asked what Israel's plans are after, you know, so-called flattening Gaza, he said, no one thinks we should be ruling over 2 million Palestinians. That's the quote. And everyone is 
you know, thirsty for any kind of information because the government has said nothing. The army clearly has said nothing. There's no long-term strategy that I know of. And I think maybe the most important thing I can say to you right now is that this unspeakable catastrophe that has befallen Israel and Israelis and Gazans is to a great extent the result of a doctrine established and advanced by Benjamin Netanyahu. And that doctrine was, let's diminish the Palestinian Authority. Let me demonize them for my own cheap political gain. Mm. And we can deal with this riffraff little terror organization. We'll pay them off with money from Qatar. We'll make occasional exchanges with them. Who are they next to us? Well, now in the most painful, unimaginable way, Israelis are paying the price Noga, I just want to ask Giles, because you've been following the Blinken movements around the region, and as Noga said earlier on, he's now back in Israel. The bit that I don't understand is what is he trying to orchestrate, given Noga's point about the absence of a comprehensive Israeli strategy? Is it clear what he's trying to get done? Uh, Two things, as far as one can tell, uh, but both ill-defined. Moderation of some kind... Uh, in whatever military operations Israel is planning in Gaza to limit the blowback and uh, a prevention of the expansion of the conflict into a regional war. Hence, uh, Jordan and Riyadh so swiftly after Israel and and now back to Israel. Um, it, It is said that the presence of two American carrier battle groups off the coast uh, will provide uh, constitute a deterrent to Iran, but there's no concrete talk of U.S. strikes against Iranian targets in any circumstance. Um, so those are the two planks of of his shuttle diplomacy at the moment: is to try to make the case for moderation and to try to prevent um, escalation into a regional war. Basha, what do you want to know? I mean, I've got so many questions. I think the biggest I have is, is a ground invasion a strategic misstep? Is this essentially what Hamas wanted, which is a disruption of the status quo? Tehran couldn't be happier if there is a ground invasion. And in which case, is the delay because of Blinken's influence to say, don't do this, this isn't going to work out well? Is this because they're still trying to game plan where this goes if they do cross into Gaza? That That's the question I have in a noggle. I don't know whether you have a view on that. I certainly don't think that ground invasion is being um, delayed because of Blinken. There's talk now, by the way, of President Joe Biden coming here on a solidarity visit either Wednesday or Thursday. Um, if you ask me, I'm... I'm being, I'm doing a bit of a detour here, but you'll see why. If you ask me, um, Netanyahu has asked Biden to come visit because he thinks it will help him look better in these terrible days. I think nothing is more dangerous for Benjamin Netanyahu than a visit from Joe Biden because Netanyahu has failed so utterly to... Uh, provide his people with even basic emergency services, with a basic explanation for how this cataclysm happened. And Joe Biden's natural 
empathy and love have shone through. So this morning, I heard this heartbreaking interview. I was telling you, this man who has five relatives who could be dead, who could be being tortured, no one knows. And he said, we need some leadership from our government. And we have an example of what leadership looks like. We saw Joe Biden and Antony Blinken. So for a simple Israeli guy, not an Anglo, not an American, for just your average Israeli Joe from the south of the country who has suffered an unimaginable tragedy, for him to say that gives you an idea of the extent of Netanyahu's failure and how precarious his situation now is. Now, regarding what you asked, Basti, the ground invasion, I think, I don't think this is what Hamas wanted. I think Hamas miscalculated. Um, I think it's very possible that Iran miscalculated. It's important to note that Iran is the top sponsor both of Hamas and of Hezbollah, who are now attacking Israel from the north. Israel's had to evacuate its northern communities. Um, I think, um, first of all, I think this attack went better than Hamas ever imagined. I think they hoped to return to Gaza with some hostages they could use, you know, as leverage against Israel. I think now they realize that they're unlikely to survive this. When I say they, I'm talking about the Hamas military command Mm-hmm. I'm really not talking on any level about the residents of Gaza. Has there been any movement in the last few days, Noga, that you've picked up, in which people begin to think about, I suppose, what underlies Basha's question? Is there another way? Is there anything other than overwhelming force that is the response to this? Is there a longer-term plan that looks to a some kind of meaningful settlement. Is there any space in Israel for that kind of conversation yet? There's absolutely space for that kind of conversation. But again, I want to distinguish between those people who have in the last uh, 10 days now come up and said, we need we need a diplomatic agreement with the Palestinians. And absolutely there are those explicitly. But again, I don't think anyone in Israel sees Hamas or what they've done as an act that will advance Palestinian uh, nationhood or that anyone wants to negotiate with Hamas. I really think we have to separate this terror act from the general question of what is going to be the fate of our neighbors, the Palestinians. That question is being asked insistently, continuously, not just by Netanyahu's political opponents, who clearly are bringing it up, but by regular citizens. There's, I received an invitation minutes ago from the Parent Circle, which is an Israeli-Palestinian organization of bereaved parents, parents who've lost children in this conflict. They ha- held a big public meeting yesterday. The subject is everywhere. But not including Hamas. Not including Hamas. I, I also have not heard Palestinians wanting Hamas to be included in political discussions. What you are hearing, and I don't think you've heard this abroad, is that the families of these Israelis hostages are demanding that Israel engage in negotiations with Hamas and have protested very loudly against a statement made two days ago by Netanyahu's national security advisor. And he said, no, we're not, we don't negotiate with Hamas. We're going to el- eliminate Hamas. And the families have spoken out very loudly. The families are demanding there be no military operation in Gaza at all until their relatives are free. There, there's, there's a very, very raucous public conversation in Israel right now. 
Charles, Norga just mentioned this issue about what we're seeing internationally versus what's being seen and heard within Israel. You mentioned Musk. Obviously, there's a big debate going on about what's now on X, aka Twitter. What was your point about Musk as a way into thinking about Israel-Palestine? Well, the misinformation that has circulated not only on X, but notably on X, is is mostly of a pro-Palestinian variety. It includes egregious fakery. A really interesting one uh, mentioned today in the FT involved a a live Hamas spokesman referring to reports of mass desertions by uh, from the IDF, from the Israeli army, uh, reported on Israel's Channel 10. They didn't happen, and Channel 10 hasn't existed since 2019. These and other fake items of news circulating uh, widely, but especially on X, where the fact that you can now buy this verification symbol means that that's the only criterion that decides who has a, 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 a blue V, and fake or inflammatory news travels further than real news. And so the, the phenomenon that the EU is challenging uh, Musk on is the deliberate spread of fake news, of, of misinformation, principally, as I say, of a pro-Palestinian variety, especially on his platform and specifically as a result of changes he's made to it since he bought it. And so if I understand it right, the EU says, if you don't get your act together on this, either stop it from happening or explain it or both, we can come after you for 6% of your global your global revenue. So what's the theory? Whose theory? Yours. Oh, my theory, and I, will you permit me to step away from Israel uh, Gaza, for a moment? It, it, it appears to indicate, and I'll try and be as brief as I can, uh, a gazillionaire going off the rails. This is a gazillionaire who found, uh, co-founded Tesla, turned it into the world's biggest car company by a margin, and then he looks at the market, the core market that he's aiming at, which is the American one, and he sees, I have the coasts, I have the liberal elite, but I still only have a tiny, tiny, tiny proportion of the US car market. EVs accounted for 8% of total new car sales last month in the US, but they still account for roughly half a percent of all the cars on the road in the US. Musk is looking at the very big picture and he's thinking, I don't have it at all. How do I deal with that? I rebrand completely. I become the bad boy as far as the liberal elite is concerned. I move to Texas, by the way. And what do I sell? I sell them a pickup truck. Now, this is a pickup truck that he's been offering them for a long time, the Cybertruck. How many reservations do you think have been paid for by uh, prospective Tesla Cybertruck buyers in the US? Just pick a number. 50,000. Two million. Whoa! Representing, if they all stick with their uh, purchase intention, about $150 billion in revenue. So, this is... This is a flippant theory, considering the seriousness of, of what we're talking about, but you, I submit, can look at the entire Musk bad boy phenomenon as very clever rebranding. It's not free. He used to do all his marketing for free. He has paid 
$40x billion for Twitter, and that's his chief megaphone. All right, well, we, well, let's take a beat for a moment and just come to Poland, because something really significant has happened there, and it's something that it's all too easy, given what else is happening in the world, not least Israel-Palestine, that we don't really understand or appreciate. I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. She's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Basha, the Polish elections. So I wanted to read a text that I got from my 88-year-old grandmother yesterday evening who had queued for longer than an 88-year-old really should. And she just texted me at 10 past 8 to say, Bashenko Vygralishman, which means Basha, we won with a love heart, which is Tusk's um, emblem. And it really hit me because we had had conversations previously in that day and over the last couple of weeks really um depressed conversations thinking how how is how is there going to be change in Poland she's found the last uh 8 years incredibly difficult as somebody who you know was born just before the second world war experienced all of that then experienced communism then saw this kind of brief reemergence of Poland and has now seen the country that she loves basically dismantled by um a populist government. And what she meant by texting me saying we won is that in an absolutely incredible turnout, uh, more than 70% of the population voting in in a national election, which is the highest since the fall of communism in 89. uh, It looks like the ruling law and justice party, though being the biggest party in terms of votes, will not be able to form a government because they have no partners to go into coalition with. And that means that Donald Tusk, who was once uh, previously prime minister and has been president of the European Council, who for the last few months has been characterised as a foreign stooge, a, a kind of an agent of, of Germany or of Brussels, it looks like if all goes if the exit polls that we saw are right, and it looks like they they have been fairly accurate, that Tusk's uh, civic coalition will be able to form a government with uh, Levitsa, which is the left-wing party, the third way, which is a centre-right party, um, and that they will be able to have a majority in the same, which is the Polish parliament. And it it is just a rare good news story, if it indeed plays out, 
But it will be a huge reorientation for Poland politically and for the EU, because if you've been following Polish politics over the last few years, you'll know that uh, they have been on a collision course with the EU. They have made a series of um, amendments to the judiciary and the Supreme Court, which uh, have been ruled illegal by the European courts, meaning that billions of EU funding have been withheld. They have essentially outlawed abortion, Uh, they've cracked down on LGBT rights, uh, they've essentially nationalized uh, most of mainstream media. And so the fact that it looks like there will be a pro progressive coalition in power before Christmas, given the level of propaganda and control over the media narrative that uh, the Law and Justice Party have had, is incredible. And it uh, there was something that Anne Applebaum wrote for The Atlantic, which I thought really hit the nail on the head in terms of what this what this election was really about. And she framed it as a question about, really about state capture. So are the people happy for the Law and Justice Party to complete their capture of state institutions, whether it's the judiciary, whether it's uh, the media, or do you want those institutions to belong once again to the country? And I think in Tusk's kind of victory speech, moments after the... Um, exit polls were announced, he said, "This we have got our beloved democracy back. And I think that is the question that this election was all about. Charles, how will that play out? Well, I don't know. My question for Basher is, is Tusk uh, the first of many or the exception who proves the rule? You know, Robert Fico has just won in, in Slovakia. Viktor Orban is still in power uh, in Hungary, having seen off a progressive alliance that tried to join forces to remove him. Very similar thing happened for what it's worth in, in Turkey. Um, but Poland is the biggest country in Eastern Europe. Is this a bellwether for the next few years? Is is Could it possibly be uh, a, a rebirth in a sense for the EU in Eastern Europe? I think it's very possible. And I think that the war in Ukraine, you know, it was... The, the the public's support was tested in this election because the Law and Justice Party announced in this row over grain imports from Ukraine that they would stop arming Ukraine, that they, you know, there was a far-right party called Confederacia, which was projected to get around 9% of the vote. Actually, they got six, so they performed well under what they were expected to. And their whole... Um, manifesto was around saying we shouldn't be supporting Ukraine. It was a kind of pro-Russian um, party, you know, of the formula that you see elsewhere. And so I think this was a rejection of the kinds of politics that I think we all feared was just now entrenched. Noggy, you may get the sense that what we're trying to do here is also find a little bit of sunshine in what is otherwise a very sad and frightening world. Um, w w uh, typically, when we hold these news meetings, and I hope you'll come and join us again, Noggy, what we try to do is have a conversation at the end about what the running order should be, what the hierarchy of news stories should be. The reality is, at this moment, there's not much of a debate about that. It feels pretty clear that the evacuation that's unfolding in Gaza and the sense and the fear of what's to come is understandably leading the news. Poland's elections are a surprise and um, uh, important 
change in the way in which we understand certainly what's happening in Europe and possibly democracy more generally. And it's clearly the, the must question uh, and his responsibility for the public square and X in particular. But, and I think inevitably everyone will come to that judgment. So I'm not going to do a performative um, go. I know you have to go and leave and do some actual reporting, Nogger. So I just wanted to say thank you for making the time to join us. I'd like to say something, though. I share Basia's feel. I don't envy your job. I understand what you're saying, and I agree. We're all journalists, but I just want to say it's not just, we're not just kind of hoping for some good news. What has happened in Poland, I think, is really important. And last night at something like two in the morning, what was I doing? I got a phone call from my good friend in Gdansk. Oh, really? Yes, Tomas Konsevit, who is a brilliant wonderful man and he's the head of the constitutional law program at Gdansk University and he called and he said listen I'm thinking of you guys every day I'm just crying with you I can't believe what we're reading and I said back to him you won what a ray of light and I I do feel that we're part of the same interwoven cloth of people trying to make the world better and survive. We being all citizens of all democracies have that role. So I just wanted to throw that in there. I don't think that the Polish election is incidental. I think it's huge. Noga, thank you both for joining us and for that story. Uh, take good <laughs> care of yourself. Charles, thank you for your time today. Basha, thank you as well. Thank you for listening. Um, there was one other democratic event uh, which we've not had time to think about, uh, which didn't go certainly as its um, creators originally thought. It was the referendum in Australia. Here's a voice note that we got from one of our listeners, which I hope helps you make sense of it. Hello, news meeting team. Australia held an historic referendum this past weekend on whether to enshrine an Indigenous voice to parliament in the Australian constitution. The proposal was led by Indigenous groups and the Australian government. In a country where Indigenous people make up 3% of the population, 59% of voters rejected the proposal in a campaign marked by deep division. I think there's a lot to explore here, including why, early in the campaign, polls showed majority support and how that ebbed away. It illustrates the ongoing impacts of colonialism, the role of media and social media, and how public debates are informed. Unfortunately, I think this is a story about racism and how it can be harnessed. Tortoise. I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.